Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. So I started last week by saying, sort of giving a, a bit of an overview of what the Bible is about in its entirety. And I mentioned that the Bible is not a book of human heroes who did great things for God. That's oftentimes the way it's treated, like it's a a book of moral heroes that God puts on display so that we will imitate them, so that we will emulate them. But we saw last week that the Bible is not a book of heroes who did uh, great things for God. It is actually a catalog of outlaws in need of a God who graciously comes to rescue us from ourselves. That's the story we get from Genesis to Revelation. And I I find it, personally, very encouraging as I read the Bible that God only loves and uses broken, guilty, non-heroic characters because it means he loves and uses people like you and like me. Uh, My friend Chad Bird wrote this a while back, and I dug it up last night. He wrote, many of the Bible's family portraits look like a Norman Rockwell nightmare. There are tales of horror where men and women do unspeakable things to those they are called to love. In these stories, husband is against wife, child against parent, brother against brother, There is no whitewashing of sin within the story of God's family. The sheer fact that all of the events in these people's lives were chosen to be chiseled into the stone of God's word tells us something. Even though we may be dragging the skeletons of failed marriages and wayward children, even though we have screwed up in massive ways, even though we have acted out of lust and hatred and selfishness and revenge, We know a God who takes pity on us. God forgives. God loves. Amazingly, he even uses people like us. How like God to have us sing so many songs written by David, who most remember as an adulterer and a murderer, but whom God remembers as a friend. Are you from, part of, or the cause of a screwed up family? Take heart. God paints his own family portraits with failed people. And he's quite willing to include you in the picture with his arm of grace slung around your shoulder. That's what we see. That's what we get when we read the Bible. We see so many stories of failure and self-destruction, so many stories of betrayal And yet what we find behind all of those stories is a God of grace who pursues, loves, forgives, and even uses failed people. As you've heard me say on numerous occasions, God loves broken people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. So the Bible makes it clear that God is in the business of pursuing and using doubters and deniers and adulterers and murderers and failures of every kind, that God only loves flawed people because flawed people are all that there are. But Noah seems to buck this trend. He seems to be the exception to the rule. 
Because we read about all of this wickedness, all of this evilness that started to take place not long after God created everything. Um, And yet there was Noah, this beacon of light, this beacon of righteousness, this, this beacon of morality. He seems to be the first good guy in the Bible. I mean, Adam, sinner. Eve, sinner. Cain, big sinner. He killed his brother. But Noah... Finally, we get, it takes us to chapter six until we get to chapter six to find a good guy. But finally, we arrive at a good guy, Noah, a guy without the need for grace. That's what it seems because good people don't need grace. Only bad people do. And Noah is clearly one of the good guys. So according to many Sunday school lessons, at least the ones I heard growing up, Noah is a, he's a hero. He's a guy who did something great. He stood firm in the face of tremendous opposition, universal opposition. He, he did something great. His faith was strong. His devotion to God was unwavering. He, he obeyed God, even though God was asking him to do something seemingly impossible. You know, at that time, rain had never fallen from the sky. The way God sort of watered the earth was from below. And so when God came and said, I'm, I'm going to send a rainstorm, water is going to cover the earth, no one had ever even seen that before. And then he asks them to build this ridiculously large boat in the middle of the desert, and everybody's making fun of him. His kids think he's crazy. His wife probably thought he was crazy too. Um, and yet he did it. It took him a 100 years or so. But he did it. He was faithful. That's that's Noah. Okay, that's the story that I heard from the time I was a kid. Every Sunday school lesson I ever heard about Noah went something like this. Remember, you too can believe what God says, just like Noah. You too can stand up to wickedness in our world, just like Noah. Don't be like the bad people who mock Noah. Be like Noah. He proves you can be a good person even if you're surrounded by evil. Okay, that's kind of the, the moral of the story that I got as this passage was taught to me. And I understand why many think this. Let me just say at the outset that that's a wrong interpretation, okay? And now I'm going to explain to you why it's a wrong interpretation, that Noah himself was as in dire need of grace as everyone else. Um, but I understand why many think this. Because after all, verse 9 does say that Noah was a righteous man and he walked with God. Okay, I mean, that's clear. But one of the things we talk about around here is how we can't really understand a particular verse or a particular passage rightly if we don't understand its surrounding context. If we don't understand what was going on before it and what comes after it, then we'll misinterpret it or we'll read it wrongly. So you can't understand verse 9 unless you understand its context, specifically what comes before it. So what is it that comes before verse 9? I'll read it again. Verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of humans had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of every human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Now, look at all the superlatives in verses five through seven. Every inclination, every human heart, only evil, all the time. Now, that kind of language doesn't give a lot of room for exceptions. I mean, some read this and make it sound like God is scouring the earth to find someone, anyone who is righteous. And then one day, just about the time he's ready to give up, while searching high and low, God sees in the distance this beacon of light. And he goes, oh my gosh, what is that over there? And he goes, oh, it's Noah. Thank God there's at least one. There's one who's good. In the face of all of this evil and in the mass of all of these bad people, there's a good one, Noah. Whew, there's at least one. Okay, but that's, that's not what it says. The word favor in verse 8 is the same word translated elsewhere as grace. So a better translation would be that God graced Noah. When it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, a better translation would be that God graced Noah or the eyes that captured Noah were eyes of grace. Okay, that's, that's a more accurate, a more literal translation. Um, so in other words, um, the whole world is bad, including Noah, every human, every inclination, all the time. Um, the whole world is bad, including Noah, but God graced Noah. Okay, so here's, here's the order, okay? Putting it all together, here's the order. Noah, along with everybody else in the world, is not good. That's clear in verses five through seven. No one's good. Um, God gives grace to Noah, verse eight, and then Noah walks with God, verse 9. That order is really, really important, okay? Because if we get it backwards, then we simply read this story as if Noah is a good guy that we should try to be like, okay? That he's not a guy who needs grace like everybody else. He's a guy that's so good that he doesn't really need God's grace. And because he doesn't need God's grace, God then uses him to do something amazing, Okay, that's not the way we would necessarily say it, but that's kind of the implication that we get if we don't read it correctly and read it in its proper order. Um, so I'll say it again, putting it all together, here is the order. Noah, along with everybody else in the world, is not good. That's verses five through seven. God gives grace to Noah, verse eight. And then after God gives grace to Noah, Noah walks with God. Verse 9. Now, this order, as I said, is crucial to our understanding, not just of this story. It's crucial to our understanding of Christianity as a whole. Um, walking with God doesn't lead to God's favor. God's favor leads to walking with God. That is a huge difference. Huge difference. Um, massive difference. In fact, I would say that that difference is the difference between religion and Christianity. Because like I said a few weeks ago, religion is about our goodnesses being rewarded. Christianity, on the other hand, is about our badness being forgiven. Those are two very different things. Those aren't similar. They're opposed to one another. You get that order backwards and you misunderstand God, you misunderstand yourself, you misunderstand the world, you misunderstand life. 
Um, religion is about doing things for God, becoming a better person, sinning less. Christianity is fundamentally not about any of those things at all, believe it or not, even though that may be what you have heard or what you thought. Christianity is fundamentally about a gracious God who loves and rescues people who keep screwing up. That's what we see. I mean, even after this, God wipes all of these wicked people off the face of the earth, and he uses Noah and his family to repopulate the earth. And I mean, it's not more than a generation after this that everything sucks again, okay? That everything's bad again. We read this over and over and over in the Bible. You never see someone arriving at a good spot and staying there, ever. I mean, we talk about, you know, in Christian circles growing up, when I was growing up anyway, you know, the big fear was you don't want to be a backslidden Christian. Okay, you don't want to backslide. I love all of those Christianese terms. I can't stand them actually, but, um, you know, you don't want to backslide a, a backslidden Christian, a carnal Christian. There was all these terms thrown around. And I'm like, find me one Christian who isn't in a perpetual state of backslidingness. Okay. I mean, unless you are perfect, as God in heaven is perfect, then you're, I mean, you're a pro at backsliding. You have a PhD in backsliding, okay? We all do. Um, So unless you understand, and this story I think serves as a microcosm for us to understand Christianity as a whole and how God relates to us, but if you understand this story to be a story about a good guy who doesn't really need God's grace and who does what God tells him to do, even though it's hard and even though it's tough and he stands in the face of this immense challenge and he does what God asks him to do, then you're going to understand Christianity to be primarily about Good people doing good things for a good God. And it won't take you very long trying to do that to realize that you're not as good as you thought you were. And I was, I was talking to somebody this week. I said, when, when that becomes what you believe Christianity to be, you end up landing in one of two places. Both are bad. Either a place of delusion where you think, I'm actually doing it. I'm pulling it off. And I'm pulling it off better than that person. Or you end up in a place of despair, which is the more honest place, believe it or not, where you go, you know what? I I can't do this. If this is what Christianity is about, I can't do it. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the stamina. Most of the time, I don't even have the desire to do it. So Christianity must not be for me. I think it is incredibly important, as you know, if you've been around here for any length of time, that it is incredibly important for us to understand this crucial distinction. Um, now, a lot of people, when I say things like Christianity is fundamentally about a gracious God who loves and rescues people who keep screwing up, a, a lot of people get confused by that, Okay. And some of the reason they get confused by that is because they've been taught along the way that if you're a Christian, one of the signs that proves that you are a Christian is that you get better and better and better as time goes on. And then that word better is very specifically defined typically as it pertains to your behavior. Your behavior's getting better. Now, I don't have to, and we'll spend some time doing this in a few weeks, but but I don't have to tell you that, especially in the Gospels, The Pharisees were all about behavior, behavior modification, behavior improvement. They were all about the externals. And then Jesus shows up and shows that he doesn't really care as much about the externals. He cares about the internal. 
He's always going to the heart of the matter. He's always going to the heart of the person. And you see this over and over. We just looked at the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks, and we saw that over and over and over and over again, that Jesus is always going to the heart of the matter. He says things like, you think you're pulling it off because you haven't committed adultery, but I tell you, if you've ever lusted in your heart, you're just as guilty before God. Or you you think you're pulling it off because you haven't murdered anybody, but I tell you, you're just as guilty before God, even if you harbor a grudge towards somebody. He's always going to the heart of the matter. Um, So a lot of people get get confused uh, by this. They think that Christianity is all about God rewarding good and faithful people, people who are strong, people who stay strong, people who are faithful and stay faithful. So if we want God to do the right things for us, we have to do the right things. If we want God's favor, if we want God's blessings, we have to earn it with some measure of goodness. We have to show that we're improving and that we're deserving of God's favor. And people have used this story of Noah for a long time to try and prove that point, that that's who God is, that that's the way God works. Um, See if I can find it. I I put something on social media yesterday. Uh, Let's see if I can find it. Hold on. Give me a second. Navigating. Oh, this is what I said. And this is true because as I was working through this material, I was thinking about this. Um, And I see this all the time, sadly, on social media from Christian leaders that you you might even know or have heard of. So I said this, some preachers seem to enjoy causing people whom God loves to question whether God loves them by constantly telling them to look at their lives. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? Look at your life. Look at, look, at, look at your heart. You know, I mean, our heart has been diagnosed by God as being uh, deceitful, crooked, misshaped. I mean, that sin in, has had an effect on the totality of our being. Um, that our hearts are impacted and affected by it. I mean, this sort of go with your heart idea, I mean, it's probably the worst thing you can do, okay? I mean, every time I've gone with my heart, I've ended up in some really bad places um, because my heart is deceptive. Uh, Apart from the grace of God, the goodness of God, the sturdiness of God, the faithfulness of God, the loyalty of God toward me, I mean, I'm in trouble. We all are. Um... I mean, lots and book, lots of books and sermons imply or explicitly state that it's your faith that activates God's faithfulness. That if you want God to be faithful to you, all you have to do is step out in faith. Okay, if you step out in faith, God will demonstrate his faithfulness to you. That if you keep your faith, God will keep you safe. That God fights for those who fight for him. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Anytime you do good for God, you're sowing a seed for God to do good for you. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is very prevalent out there. And if it's not explicitly stated like that, it's implied, at least implied. Now, if that's true, if that's who God is, if that's what Christianity is, if that's true, then the Noah story isn't a picture of grace at all. It's a picture of who we should be if we want to get God's grace. 
If we want to get God's blessing, that's what this story is about if our interpretation of it is that Noah was a good guy who was deserving of God's favor and God's help because of his goodness. But what happens when your faith crumbles? I mean, I, you know, I've, I, I've been a Christian for most of my life. And I can tell you right now that my faith crumbles on a weekly basis. Not necessarily in any big catastrophic way, but anytime I find myself depending on me, wanting to control circumstances, wanting to control people, wanting to sort of manipulate the narrative, wanting to get something that I think I need, all of that stuff, I am exercising faithlessness. My faith crumbles all the time. Thankfully, uh, God's love for us is not, as I mentioned in my prayer before, dependent on our faith or the strength of our faith, but ultimately in the object of our faith, namely Jesus. Um, So what happens when your faith crumbles? How does this narrative of be a good, strong, sturdy, faithful person and God will bless you, how does that play out? When your faith crumbles, when you're questioning God, whether God cares, whether God exists, whether God, whether God is tender and loving towards you because everything seems to be falling apart, things you've prayed for for years and years and years don't seem to be panning out. It's almost as if God is out to get you, it feels. I mean, I have felt that a lot at different times. Like God is paying me back for bad stuff, that God is getting me back, that God seems to at times take delight in watching me suffer and go through hard stuff. I mean, in those moments, my faith in God's goodness and my faith in God's grace, it gets, it crumbles and I start questioning him. Um, what, but what happens also when instead of standing firm, you, you, you cave, you know, I mean, it would be, be great if I could stand firm all the time, but what happens What happens when instead of standing firm, you you cave, when you let go of God, when you quit trying, you just quit, when you fail, when you give in again to your bad habits that have plagued you for most of your life, whatever they may be, big or small. Um, I mean, if God's favor is dependent on my faith, I'm, I'm in big trouble. We all are. Um... I mean, I I wish I could say, great is my faithfulness to God. I wish I could say that. I can't, and neither can you. What I can say is great is God's faithfulness to me. That's what I can say. As I've said before, I, I wish that I could say, I give everything to God. I can't say that, and neither can you. What I can say is that God in the person of Jesus gave everything to me. That's the gospel. That's good news. Um, in other words, God loves us not because we are good, but because he is good. It's that simple. It's that simple. You see, Christianity is not a story of God meeting us halfway. It's not God will love us a lot if we love him a little. All we have to do is exercise a mustard seed of faith and we will have bounty from God forever. Okay, that's, that's the way these passages, a lot of passages in the Bible are interpreted and understood. Um, but Christianity is not a story of God meeting us halfway. It's, it's not a story of 
you know, God will love us a lot. All we have to do is love him a little. Just give him a little. Give him a little. It's, you'll be amazed at what God can do if you just give him a little. I mean, I heard that stuff ad nauseum growing up, ad nauseum. Um, you see, Christianity is not good advice. It's why I don't stand up here week after week and just give you good advice um, because that's not what this is about. I mean, now, if, you're, if you have a problem, you have an issue, and you want to talk to me about it, I will be, and you seek my counsel or seek my advice, I will be happy to sit down with you and talk through some of the issues and advise you as wisely as I can. But the job description of the pulpit is not to give good advice. It's not to teach you how to be better behaved, It's not to demonstrate some good technique because Christianity is not about all of those things. It's not good advice. It's not good technique. It's not good behavior. It's good news. That's what it is. Ultimately, it's good news. It's not, I will die for Jesus. It's Jesus died for me. That's what it is. Um, I was reading the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego yesterday. Okay, you know, the famous story of the three guys, the three faithful men who were in captivity in Babylon and, um, and King Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown in the fiery furnace and they didn't die. In fact, when the king went in and looked later, he saw that there were actually four men in the fire. Um, and it was, you know, God with them, keeping them safe. And when they emerged from the fiery furnace, I love what the Bible says. It says they didn't, not only were they not burned, they didn't even smell like smoke. Okay. That is how, uh, comprehensive God's protection is. Um, and I love that story for a lot of reasons, but that story also frustrates me to be honest with you. Cause I'm like, dude, if I were given the option by whoever's in charge to bow down to an idol renounce my faith, bow down to an idol, at least externally, or be thrown in a fire, I can't promise you that I wouldn't just go, you know what, I'll bow down, but God, you know, I really don't mean it. Okay, I really don't mean this. I'm just, I'm gonna bow down and I'm just gonna sort of, you know, after all, you need me to keep telling people about how good you are, so why would my death serve you? I mean, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that I would probably buckle, okay? I need to be here for my family. I need to be here for my wife. I need to be here for my grandkids. I, I need to be here. I, this, I'll, I'll just, I'll pretend like I'm bowing down to an idol, but in my heart, I'm not, okay? Um, that's probably the way that I would respond. Now, I find a lot more comfort uh, from another story I read yesterday. Um, Thomas Cranmer, who was a, he was a, a high churchman in England in the 1500s, um, and Bloody Mary captured his family, put them in prison, his wife and kids, and said, if you don't renounce your beliefs, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to kill them. And so he did. He renounced them. Uh, he recanted what he believed so he could save his family. And then later, he felt so horrible about the fact that he denied God like Peter did that he refused to recant and he was burned at the stake. And as they were carrying him to the fire, he, the first thing he put into the fire by his own volition was the hand that signed the original recantation because that's how guilty he felt about it. Now, I, 
I relate a little bit more to that because he's a guy who buckled like I would have buckled, like I often do buckle. Um, and so if, if Christianity's good advice, good behavior, good technique, if that's what it's about, maybe you've mastered it. I haven't. And I've been at it for a long time. Um, I mean, I've been at it personally and professionally for a long time. Um, and I'd like to think that I've gotten better over the years, and maybe in some ways I have, but in other ways I've gotten worse. Uh, in most ways, I've pretty much stayed the same. Um, and so if this is all about my improvement, my getting better, if Christianity is about empowering me to become a better and better and better person as I get older and older and older, I just don't know where that is in the Bible. If it's there, show me. I'm open to learn and open to learn new things. But what I see is the Apostle Paul saying things at the end of his life, a guy who preached the gospel to the then known world, planted churches all over the place, and saying at the end of his life, as an old, as an old man, I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst guy that I know, which stands to reason because the closer we get to God, the more of our own blemishes we see. I mean, the closer we get to the light of who God is, the, the more of our own blemishes we see. So it stands to reason that as you get older, rather than being braggadocious about the fact that you've gotten better and wiser, it's actually more honest to go, I am more aware now than I was when I was 30 of how desperately I need God in his grace. I'm more aware now as I get older how much I need God's mercy. That's... That's Christian growth. That's what it looks like to mature as a Christian. Not I'm getting better and better and I'm sinning less and less. I mean, sinning less doesn't get you in anyway. I mean, you have to be sinless, sinless to get in with God. And there was only one who was sinless. And he's the ticket we have. He gets us in. We don't get ourselves in. He gets us in. Um, so I, all of that comforts me immensely because I don't, I don't need a savior who saves the faithful. I need a savior who saves the faithless. That's what I need. I need a God who saves the weak, the spineless, the ones who buckle under pressure. That's what I need. I, I need a, a God who loves and forgives filthy rich Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery, the Roman soldiers flippantly tossing dice in the shadow of Jesus' dying body, mocking him. I need a God who runs after us when we run away from him. I need a God who holds on to us when we let go of him. That's what I need. That's what we all need. I need a God who indiscriminately accepts repeat offenders over and over and over again and who doesn't hold a grudge against us because we keep screwing up. That's the God that I need. I need a father who comes running to prodigals like me with outstretched arms crying, welcome home again and again and again. And again, that's the savior that we need. And that's the savior that we have. So Noah was just as in need of God's grace as anyone else. 
He was part of that massive humanity that was really going off the rails. But God graced him. God favored him. God made him alive. And as a result of that, a relationship with God was born and Noah walked with God. Um, The Noah story is actually an amazing picture of grace. I mean, to read it the wrong way, as I mentioned earlier, would be to read it as if Noah is a guy who doesn't need grace. All of these other people needed grace. They needed mercy. They needed something. They needed a kick in the pants. They needed a flood, apparently. But uh, Noah, not so much. He's kept the rules and he's done the right thing. And because he's kept the rules and he's done the right thing, because he's been a good guy, I'm going to be good to him. Um, if that's the way the story is read and understood, then, then the Noah story is not a picture of grace. Um, but it actually is an amazing picture of grace. It shows us once again that God meets our worst with his best. I mean, just like God would have been totally justified in washing his hands of Noah, he would be totally justified if he washed his hands of us. I mean, he's under no obligation to be good to any of us. I mean, we, we've broken all the rules. We've failed to be perfect the way God is perfect. We don't meet God's standards. We don't satisfy God's expectations. Uh, we can't meet God's demands. We, we can't do it. I, was, uh, I put something up on social media this, uh, like a week or so ago, something to this effect, and somebody, somebody responded and said, yes, but aren't we called to be peculiar people? And I said, actually, we're called to be a hell of a lot more than peculiar people. We're called to be perfect. That's the call. And none of us passed that test. So thank God for Jesus. Um, so just like God would have been totally justified in washing his hands of Noah, he, he would be totally justified if he washed his hands of us. But that's the surprise of grace. That's why grace always comes as a surprise, as, as a shock. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. What God did with Noah, he does with us. He favors us not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. How counterintuitive is that? And that's not the way this world works. We don't favor people who don't deserve it, we favor people who do deserve it. But God's on another level. He's working on a completely different plane. Uh, God's ethics are very different than ours. The way God operates is very different than the way we, we operate. He favors us not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. He graces us not because we are clean. He graces us because we are dirty. Because we need it. We see that in John 1. When John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus there and and he's talking about Jesus coming to earth in the form of a baby. Um, And he says, you know, he came to his own, meaning that God came to the people he created and his own did not receive him. He didn't show up because we were asking for him to show up. 
He showed up because we were running from him. He didn't show up because we were clean and wanted to reward us for our cleanliness. He showed up because we were dirty and we needed to be rescued from ourselves. Because we needed to be rescued from death and sin and all of the things that we give our hearts and lives to. Um, He favors us not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. He graces us, not because we're, we're clean. He graces us because we are dirty. And it's his love that makes us want to walk with him. That's the other part here. Noah found favor in the eyes of God and Noah walked with God. Which one comes first? Favor. It's, it's God's favor that makes us want to be with him, that makes us trust him. It's It's... I was telling this friend of mine who made the bet uh, yesterday, I was telling this friend of mine, um, I said, you know, and I've shared this with you before also, that um, I, I, I think the people who know me best would probably say, if they've known me for a long time, would probably say I'm, I'm more forgiving now than I was maybe 20 years ago, that I'm less likely to hold a grudge uh, than maybe I was 20 years ago. And it's not because I've read you know, books on how to not hold a grudge and or I've heard sermons on how to be more forgiving. That, that's not how it's happened. I've just, my own failures have forced me to reckon with God's forgiveness in such a way that I'm just, I'm probably more forgiving and I'm not even trying. I've just been soaking, marinating in the hot tub of God's forgiveness for so long that I'm just, I'm starting to soften a little bit. Um, it's taken a long time. I'm a stubborn dude, and it's taken a long time. But, I mean, I'm starting to soften a bit, and it's not because I'm even trying to get softer, trying to be more loving, trying to... I'm just... That's what happens naturally to people who bask in the grace and forgiveness and love of God, and it makes you want to walk with Him. You find yourself sort of doing things... Uh, that maybe you wouldn't have done 15 years ago, not because you ha- you've been making this concerted effort to stop this and to start that. It's just that you've, 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 God has favored you. He's graced you. He's loved you. He's forgiven you. And that's just starting to soften you. Um, it's his love that makes us want to walk with him. That's what it is. It's his love for us. We love him, 1 John says, because he first loved us. It's his love for us that prompts love from us, not the other way around, not the other way around. That too is the difference between Christianity and religion. Um, It is a relationship with him, not rules from him that invokes intimacy. I mean, I I can't tell you uh, how frustrated I get when I hear preachers or Bible teachers uh, think as the, the way what they say and the way they say it makes me believe that they actually think that if they just tell people what to do and warn them of what will happen with God if they don't do it, that that'll soften their heart and straighten them up. Um, it's not what happens. I mean, that's, that's not what the apostle Paul says in Romans 7. He says, as soon as you tell me what not to do, that's the thing I want to do. That's the exact thing I want to do. You tell your two-year-old, don't play with the light socket. They are on a mission to do nothing but play with the light socket. I mean, that's, that's just, we're, we're natural born rebels in that regard. We just are. 
Um, and so it's, it's not rules from him that invokes intimacy. It's a relationship with him. One of my favorite quotes, and I'll, I'll close with this, one of my favorite quotes comes from Charles Spurgeon. He speaks to this. And I remember reading this years and years ago and thinking, that's it. That's it. He said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin, to run away from him. But when I discovered God to be so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion and forgiveness, I beat my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so much. That's it. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance, Hebrews says. It's God's tenderness. It's his compassion. It's his love and forgiveness, not his hardness, his demands. We've failed to meet his demands. So that, that ship has sailed, okay? Our only hope is his mercy. I think it was Robert Frost who said, I can't trust God to be unmerciful. I love that. I can't trust God to be unmerciful. He is mercy. Or as the old hymnist William Cooper wrote, who suffered with depression his entire life and died at a young age. He wrote this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.